0: Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cassis Belly Project. Before beginning this episode, I'd like to send a shout out to Feedspot for adding the saga to their list of the top 10 World War II podcasts. So if my publishing rate is a little slow, and you need to get your fix elsewhere, you can go to blog.feedspot.com slash worldwar2podcasts to see who else made the list. That's blog.feedspot.com slash world underscore war underscore ii underscore podcasts. As always, thanks to all of you who have left glowing reviews on iTunes, I really appreciate that. So in this episode, I talk about aircraft formations again, but I realized I don't think I ever really defined these before, so like I've done in the past, I want to give a brief primer. So the basic unit in combat aviation is the flight, consisting of about five aircraft, depending on the organization, and is led by a lieutenant or captain. Next up is the squadron, which is composed of three to five flights and can be commanded by a lieutenant colonel. Now here's where it gets a little confusing. In Commonwealth countries, squadrons are organized into wings and then into groups. However, in the US Air Force, squadrons are organized into groups then into wings. So to avoid any confusion, anytime I mention these elements, I'll also include the number of aircraft. Anyway, that's enough. Let's begin episode 21, Shangri-La. I have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? So last we spoke of the Philippines, the Japanese were landing throughout the archipelago and driving back the American garrison, along with its Filipino counterparts. MacArthur had made the decision to fall back to the Bataan Peninsula, fighting delaying actions along the way. On December 14th, George C. Marshall, Chief of Staff of the Army, placed Dwight Eisenhower in charge of the Far East War Plans desk, and from there, Eisenhower did everything he could to save the Philippines. He knew it was a lost cause, though. The islands were at the very limit of America's logistical ability. He could scarcely get any material into the archipelago, much less troops. His only hope was to resupply the men and give them time to evacuate piecemeal. Despite the hopelessness of the situation, Eisenhower knew America couldn't simply abandon their protectorate. They had to at least go down swinging. So that's what he did. He sent supplies across the Pacific to stage in Australia with what few vessels were available. Getting planes and supplies to Australia was one thing, though. Getting north through Indonesia was another matter entirely. The Japanese had the Philippines completely blockaded, controlled all of the airfields for roughly a thousand miles in every direction. The Japanese had not only naval, but air superiority as well, ruling out relief even by the entire Pacific fleet. So Eisenhower had to turn to hiring blockade runners. Even with his budget of $10 million, he found few takers. The Philippines were under siege. The American-Filipino forces holding out in the Philippines performed well in the first two months after the invasion winning successive battles in January that sent the Japanese reeling. Having suffered so many casualties to the Allies and to the disease-ridden jungles, General Hama halted the Japanese offensive. He was supposed to have taken the islands by the end of January, but he spent February husbanding his forces and generating combat power as reinforcements flowed in. Meanwhile, American forces withered. By February, their food supplies were dwindling quickly. Their rations consisted of few ounces of rice, sugar, and canned fish. Most of the men were starving, and many racked by diseases like diarrhea, dengue, yellow fever, hookworm, malaria, dysentery, and malnutrition. Those who were healthy enough would go on food patrols to try to find something, whether that be bushmeat like birds, monkeys, and lizards, or Japanese rations left unattended. If they were caught behind Japanese lines, so be it. Better to die from an enemy bullet than some horrible parasite. Medical supplies and water were scarce, too. Quinine, the age-old cure for malaria was used up quickly, and clean water was worth its weight in gold. Of course, this was only true on the front lines. In the rear, whether at the harbor defense in Corregidor, or naval vessels in Meraviles, the men were overfed and underworked. When frontline troops made their way to the rear for various reasons, they were astounded by the bounty. They began bringing back trophies and souvenirs to trade for food. This, of course, only bred resentment. Now, there is always a degree of resentment of the infantrymen at the pointy end of the stick toward the rear echelon support types, but in the Philippines, it was nearly murderous. How could they be made to suffer while sailors ate like kings and only had to lament the lack of ice cream? It's not as if this was an unfortunate but unavoidable reality of war. Had MacArthur demanded it, rations would have been redistributed and the load would have been borne by all, but it wasn't. MacArthur never even visited the front, and the men resented him for that, their resentment only grew worse when they learned he had escaped to Australia. It was not for lack of sympathy, though. During the three months he had led the Battle of the Philippines, MacArthur had lost 25 pounds, and had actually intended to disobey President Roosevelt by ignoring his order for him to evacuate the island. But in the end, his staff convinced him that he could do more good by getting out and leading the inevitable follow-on forces. At 8 p.m. on March 11th, MacArthur, along with his family and 18 members of his staff, boarded four patrol boats and headed out into the darkness. The night before, he had had an emotional farewell with General Wainwright, his deputy, who would succeed him in command of the defense. He left his emaciated lieutenant the most prized possessions he had left, a box of cigars and two cans of shaving cream, telling him, I'll come back as soon as I can, with as much as I can. The four PT boats got lost in the darkness and overnight storms, but eventually made it to Mindanao, where a flight of B-17s waited. From there, they flew the party to Darwin. After arriving in Darwin, a C-47 flew them to Alice Springs, deep in the red center of Australia. From there, he boarded the Ghan, the train to Adelaide. From there, he would be taken to Melbourne. Somewhere along the way, MacArthur realized he had not retreated in shame, but achieved a daring escape, at least in the eyes of the press and the general public. In Adelaide, surrounded by reporters eager for a statement, he said his famous line, I came through, and I shall return. This only served to further infuriate his men when they learned about it, however. I came through. I shall return. No word for his men, only words for himself. His obsession with himself was further reflected by his communiques, which typically address his units and headquarters, not his ex-regiment or ex-headquarters, but rather as MacArthur's men, or MacArthur's headquarters. Of 142 communiques dispatched from the Philippine headquarters, 109 mentioned only one man, Douglas MacArthur. In mocking disdain, the men left in Bataan would often remark when going to relieve themselves, I shall return. To make matters worse, MacArthur had seemingly poisoned inter-service relations intentionally. Before leaving, he had recommended all the army units present in the Philippines with decorations for valor intentionally leaving out all the marines and sailors. Thankfully, Wainwright immediately corrected this deliberate slight, but the damage was done. The men in the Philippines would fight on heroically for another month, but without reinforcements and quickly depleting supplies, they had to surrender. On May 6th, General Wainwright surrendered to the Japanese, and only three days later, on May 9th, 1942, General King surrendered all remaining forces in Bataan, leading to the infamous 65-mile forced march from Maraviles to San Fernando, in which thousands would die, now known grimly as the Bataan Death March. The Philippines had fallen. The Japanese now controlled a truly vast empire, spanning thousands of miles from northern Manchuria to the south of the equator in parts of Indonesia. The Japanese had achieved a feat of conquest unseen in modern times. Not even Hitler could claim to rival the Japanese in sheer territory, now under their influence, and at the center of it, lay Isiroko Yamamoto, whose strategy had proven so successful. Perhaps too successful. The empire was at the absolute limits of what such a small island country could possibly control. The population of Imperial Japan's overseas territories now almost equaled that of their home islands, and huge numbers of troops were tied up in defending the long land border in China, and Manchuria, against the Chinese and Russians. The Imperial Japanese Navy had to patrol thousands of miles of ocean and protect long supply lines, feeding raw materials back to Nippon. And the Japanese wanted yet more territory. After the fall of the Philippines and the consolidation of the Dutch East Indies, they would strike out at Port Moresby on the southeastern coast of New Guinea, the southern Solomon Islands, Samoa, Fiji, New Caledonia, the Marshall Islands, Midway, and even far-off Aleutian Islands in Alaska. Most of these would be easy conquests, the idea was to create an outer line of defense that the American fleet would have to penetrate. They assumed the Americans would have to stop and take every island, at least along their axis of advance, and hope to chew up American combat power in these successive amphibious assaults. They also intended to finish off the American Navy. The attack on Pearl had crippled the American battleship fleet, but the carrier fleet remained intact, so Yamamoto intended to deliver the final blow by luring them out. Prior to this, however, there was other mischief to be done to the Royal Navy on the east coast of India. As we discussed during the raid on Darwin, the Japanese had made a decision to hit the port town before heading further west to strike at Royal Navy bases in the Indian Ocean. After striking at Darwin, Nungumo's first air fleet raided the small coast of town of Broome in western Australia, then returned to port to rest and refit before striking out against India. The Indian Ocean was firmly in the British area of responsibility, and to defend the waters there, the admiralty assigned Admiral Sir James Somerville. Though his force was powerful in theory, consisting of five battleships and three carriers, it was in fact a paper tiger. Four of the battleships were R-class, old and outmatched by newer designs of the Japanese, and one of the carriers was old and outclassed as well. Somerville determined to split his force into essentially a varsity squad and a JV squad. The JV team with its old battleships and weak carrier he sent to East Africa, far from the threat of Japanese torpedo bombers, and sent the Varsity crew to Ceylon and a secret naval facility in the Maldives where they could quickly strike out at the Japanese fleet. Somerville believed the Japanese intended to raid Ceylon sometime on or around April 1st, so he kept his ships to the west by day and sent them out to search for the Japanese by night along their expected avenue of approach. This tactic would prove to be his undoing. On the evening of April 4th, Just after his fleet had returned to the Maldives to resupply, Somerville's air patrol spotted the Japanese fleet 400 miles southeast of Ceylon. Somerville alerted the port facilities that the Japanese were nearby. The two cruisers that happened to be in Ceylon at the time set sail to meet the main body, while the harbor at Colombo prepared for the inevitable raid. Somerville halted resupply operations and made for Ceylon as fast as he could. As was now established technique and procedure, the Japanese launched their aircraft early on Sunday morning, on April 6th. Unlike Pearl and Darwin, though, Colombo had time to prepare itself. Radar tracked the 126th plane raid as it approached, and the AA gunners prepped their cannons. The island also had a fighter wing-sized element of about 40 aircraft to defend it. The defenders rose to intercept the Japanese strike force, but only managed to down seven of the attackers, unlocks 26 of their own fighters in a pitched 30-minute battle. The port came out relatively unscathed, but the destroyer Tenedos was destroyed. The cruiser Dorsetshire and Cornwall that had fled at the initial warning were also spotted by a recon aircraft and pursued by 90 Japanese aircraft. Both were sunk en route to the main fleet and sunk with 400 men aboard. Somerville continued to try and intercept the Japanese raiders, but failed. Meanwhile, the carrier Ryujo was conducting parallel raids in the Bay of Bengal and along the Orissa coast of eastern India. This task force broke into three smaller divisions and set about wreaking havoc on Allied shipping. Over the course of several days, starting on April 1st, the Ryujo task force sunk 28 merchant vessels totaling 145,000 tons of material. Along the way, they bombed port facilities to further cripple Allied activity. On April 7th, the Ryujo broke contact and headed back east. That wasn't the end of Nagumo's raiding in the Indian Ocean, though. As soon as the Ryujo disappeared into the vastness of the sea, Nagumo re-emerged. Again, Somerville was caught in the worst possible configuration, with his fleet resupplying in the Maldives and the older vessels heading for East Africa. On April 8th, Nagumo had been spotted 450 miles east of Ceylon, and the next day, he struck at the port of Trincomalee on the northeast coast of the island opposite Colombo. Thanks to the early warning, the port was able to prepare, and a flight of British bombers was even able to launch a counterattack against the Japanese carriers, but it did little good. The bombers did little damage, and had no effect on Japanese aerial operations, which managed to sink the HMS Hermes along with a destroyer and two tankers attempting to flee with her. When the carrier was spotted leaving port trying to escape, 85 dive bombers swarmed her and absolutely riddled her with 500-pound bombs. The only silver lining was that the carrier had left all of its aircraft at land-based airfields, preventing even greater loss of life and material. Just as quickly as he had appeared in the Indian Ocean, Nagumo was gone again. After the raid on April 9th, he sailed east to prepare for Japanese operations in the Solomon Islands and the Coral Sea. He had dealt a devastating blow to Commonwealth forces in the Far East. Though the Japanese Navy would not return to the Indian Ocean for the duration of the war, there was hardly any reason for them to. The Royal Navy had received a bloody nose, and would not soon recover with so many port facilities damaged. It would be a long time before Commonwealth forces could even consider a counterattack, or penetrating the Japanese perimeter from the west. A counterattack would be coming, though, and a form the Japanese scarcely imagined possible. Though the Japanese government had instituted regular air raid drills, the Japanese population quickly became inured to them. They were high on victory fever, and knew the extent of their empire. There was nowhere remotely close to the home islands that the Allies could strike from, so why did they need to concern themselves with air raid sirens? The Japanese government had actually begun putting some investment into their civil air defense. Civilian populations were formed into fire brigades and used to create sandbag embankments outside the exteriors of mostly wooden buildings. Women especially were employed in air raid defenses, despite Japanese cultural norms which typically kept women at home. They were given instruction on how to best defeat structural fires, and made to run uphill with pails of water to learn how to shuttle them without spilling. Beginning in January 1942, the entire population was encouraged to wear the national uniform of khakis with beige putties and army cap on the 8th of every month. By April 1942, many people had grown tired of these drills and preparations, so that when the people of Tokyo heard sirens on April 18th, most of them hardly noticed. Back in Washington, President Roosevelt was clamoring for a way to strike back at the Japanese and wanted an air raid on Tokyo. Lucky for the president, the Navy had already begun envisioning just this sort of operation. Though there wasn't a suitable airfield within range of land-based bombers to reach Japan, aircraft carriers could get a land-based bomber within range to have a one-way shot at the raid, with some modifications, of course. So Admiral Nimitz and General King sought a man for the job, and they decided on Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle. The mission was straightforward enough. As many bombers as possible would be packed onto the deck of a carrier and launched toward Japan. To keep the precious carriers as far as possible from the mainland, and decrease the possibility of detection, the bombers were not expected to return. Instead, they would fly over Tokyo, drop their payload, and continue on to China. Though the small numbers of bombers that would be involved would not cause any great material harm to Japan, the psychological effects would be tremendous. The Japanese would be demoralized after a strike at the heart of the invincible Nippon, and American spirits would be raised by finally getting a little revenge. The requirements for the aircraft to achieve such a feat were that it would have to be able to take off and land from a carrier, have a range of 2,400 nautical miles, and have a bomb load of 2,000 pounds. Though no aircraft truly met the planners' requirements, the B-25 Mitchell bomber would suffice. Its unmodified flight range was only 1,300 miles. So the aircraft taking part in the mission would have to be modified to increase their fuel capacity and decrease weight. This meant shedding armor, equipment, and weapons. In January, pilots began practicing short takeoffs and landings at Norfolk Naval Base in Virginia, and by early February, they were practicing actual carrier operations. Once the concept was proven, the 17th Bomb Group was chosen to conduct the mission. The aircraft were taken in for modification, then transferred to Eglin Airfield in Florida to begin a (coughs) three-week crash course in carrier operations. During training, three aircraft were damaged, unable to continue. After the train-up, the group was transferred to California and loaded onto the USS Hornet. On April 2nd, with 16 bombers aboard, the Hornet left San Francisco Bay. A few days later, the Hornet linked up with Task Force 16, consisting of the USS Enterprise, as well as several cruisers, destroyers, and fuelers, commanded by Admiral Bull Halsey. After the link-up, the task force continued northwest into the Pacific under radio silence to conceal their movements. On April 17th, the fuelers topped off the carriers and cruisers, then withdrew with the destroyers. The remaining vessels then steamed ahead at 20 knots toward Japan to cover the distance to the launch point as quickly as possible. The Japanese were not resting on their laurels by any means. Yes, they were filled with victory fever, and hubris had certainly begun to creep into the minds of its leadership, but they weren't stupid— and had established pickets reaching out hundreds of miles into the Pacific. The task force was first sighted at 7.30 in the morning on April 18th by a picket ship while still 650 miles from Japan, 200 miles short of the launch point. Though the task force managed to sink the picket, it was too late. The skipper had already reported the sighting. The Japanese took note and diverted Nagumo's fleet returning from the Indian Ocean, but they were thousands of miles away. No matter, the Japanese thought. The carriers are still well out of range. This was the third picket ship the task force had sighted, but the first to have definitively sighted them, so Halsey and Doolittle decided they had to pull the trigger. In the heavy seas that are endemic in winter of the North Pacific, Doolittle and his men climbed aboard their aircraft. The B-25s were loaded down with fuel and bombs, but with a strong headwind and the Hornet steaming into it at full speed, no one was worried about getting the bombers aloft. First, Doolittle himself took off, followed by 15 more aircraft, and by 9.20 in the morning, 10 hours ahead of schedule, they were making haste toward Tokyo. Six hours later, at just about noon, the bomb group arrived. First only two bombers, dropping their ordnance on the completely shocked Japanese. Twenty minutes later, the rest of the bombers showed up. Due to the long journey and difficulty navigating, most of the bombers didn't arrive in unison, but actually rather piecemeal, which may have saved them. Because they were arriving in such a disjointed fashion, Japanese fighter defenses weren't able to mount a concentrated defense and inflicted no damage. Even the defending anti-air batteries were useless, causing only superficial damage to one aircraft. American gunners claimed to have downed three zeros. Despite having loosed their bombs and accomplished their goal of scaring the Japanese, the mission wasn't over. The aircrew still had a thousand miles and seven hours of flying to go before reaching the Chinese coast, and not all of them would make it. One aircraft, led by Captain Edward York, was so low on fuel that its commander decided they couldn't even make it to China, and that instead, they would make their way for the Soviet Union. Though they made it to Russia, it would be over a year before they made it out. The Soviet Union had deliberately not given the Americans permission to land because they feared it would violate their neutrality with the Japanese. So the crew was interred indefinitely. Though treated reasonably well, they obviously wanted to escape from Russia and return to the United States So they managed to smuggle themselves into jointly occupied Iran, where they made it to the British Consulate in May 1943, well over a year after landing near Vladivostok. Years later, declassified documents revealed the Russians actually had a hand in assisting the escape. The NKVD had apparently orchestrated the whole thing. The remaining 15 aircraft made for China. The going was tough, though. As night fell, the weather turned for the worst, and the exhausted crews had trouble navigating though all would successfully cross the East China Sea. After flying for 13 hours, all of the crews had rough landings, either crashing in fields, ditching in the ocean, or abandoning the aircraft in flight. Of the 80 men who participated in the raid, 71 survived, and 69 even managed to escape capture. The crew of two planes were captured in Japanese-occupied China and imprisoned. From those two aircraft, eight men were captured. All were sentenced to death, but five had their sentences commuted, the other three decapitated. Of those remaining four, three would survive to the end of the war, and the other died in captivity. Though Doolittle was extremely disappointed with the raid, all 16 aircraft were lost and hardly any damage had been done, he was surprised to learn upon returning home that he was a hero. The President awarded him the Medal of Honor, and he was promoted two grades, from Lieutenant Colonel to Brigadier General. Every man that participated in the mission was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for their part, and Chiang Kai-shek awarded them all China's highest honor possible. All of them would return to service flying in the China-India-Burma theater, and later in the North African and European theaters. Of them, twelve would die during the war, and two would be medically discharged after receiving severe injuries. The raid dealt a huge psychological blow to the Japanese. The Navy was deeply embarrassed for having allowed an American carrier-borne attack to be carried out on the sacred homeland. Yamamoto himself presented himself before the Emperor in his dress whites to apologize personally for the grave sin of allowing enemy bombs to come so close to his Imperial Highness. So the raid was not quite as much of a failure as Doolittle had feared. Roosevelt was certainly impressed. In a press conference, when he was asked about the attack, the President made a peculiar reference to James Hilton's novel, Lost Horizon. The reporter asked him where the planes had launched from. The president replied cryptically, Shangri-La.